invite you to turn in your scriptures tonight to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to be reading from Genesis chapter 8 and also from Genesis chapter 9 this evening as we continue our short series on our biblical character of Noah. Genesis chapter 8. So we had in our first message on Noah the uh, sort of the, the legacy that brings Noah into being, the lineage there, the promise of God to bring forth a deliverer, uh, the naming of Noah by Lamech that would lead us to believe that Lamech was trusting in that promise that God would bring forth a deliverer, and that perhaps it might even have been Noah. And he, as we dealt with in that message, is indeed a picture of Christ. He's a foreshadowing of Christ, but obviously he is not the Savior of the world. And yet uh, we see him as a righteous man living in a very unrighteous age. Reminder in some ways of our own situation. Last Lord's Day we dealt with the flood itself and the lessons that God is teaching not only to our brother Noah but to us as well through that flood, his purity, his holiness, his mercy, his provision. This evening we deal with the relationship that God establishes with Noah and with us as well. Don't leave us out of the picture of what happens here in 8 and 9 in a covenant relationship. So Genesis 8, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove from the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subdued from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went forth by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. But you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I will, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you again tonight, Lord, thanking you for preserving your word that we might have it to read today, a real history of what took place on this planet. Lord, we thank you for your justice. We thank you also for your mercy in saving, believing Noah and his family. Thank you, too, for the covenant promises that you have made to us. And pray that you'll be with Pastor Bob tonight as he tells us more about that. Give him your words to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, God reiterates it several times in this passage as I read it. I will establish my covenant with you. A covenant. And that's what I want us to think about this evening, that covenant. And as we think about this covenant, we have to think about it in terms of of the totality of God's word. 
I remember when I was in school um, learning about this covenant. And I was told that there were three covenants that God made. There was a covenant of works. That's the covenant that God established with Adam in the garden. There is the covenant of nature that God establishes with Noah. And there is the covenant of grace that begins with Abraham. Well, over the course of the years, I, I think, although with many good intentions, that way of defining covenants was not very accurate. There is not a third covenant found in Scripture. There are but two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And this account that we have here in these verses that I have read this evening from God's Word are once again a picture, a type of covenant of grace that finds its fulfillment ultimately in Christ. So yes, that covenant that God establishes with Abraham, that covenant of grace, yes, that's a picture of that which is to come in Christ. The covenant that God establishes on Sinai is a covenant of grace that finds its fulfillment in Christ. The covenant that God makes with David is a covenant that finds its fulfillment in Christ. The covenant that Jeremiah prophesies of, the new covenant I will establish with you and I will put my word in your heart, that covenant, that covenant of grace that, that Jeremiah is prophesying about finds its fulfillment in Christ. And all the elements of the covenant that we have in Christ are found here in this passage, in this covenant with Noah. Let me highlight four of them for you to begin with tonight. We begin with verse 1 of chapter 8. The covenant starts with grace. That's where it begins. That's where God's covenant of grace with us starts. It starts with grace. It doesn't start with us. It doesn't start with God looking upon us and saying, wow, what nice people. I think I'll make a covenant with you nice people. Man, you folks are really trying hard. You're really trying to live by my word. I think, I'll, I, think I, as God, will make a covenant with you. Nor is it that God sees down through the telescope of time and looks and says, you know, I think Bob Van Manen at some point in his life is going to commit his life to, to my son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I'm going to make a covenant with him. Covenants are never about us. Covenant is always about God. And it's always about grace. Look at how that passage begins. But God remembered Noah. And what do we read about in chapter 8 and 9? Chapter 8 and 9 is about this covenant. That's the theme of it. God establishing his covenant with Noah. Where does it start? It starts with God. But God remembered Noah. God found, God saw Noah. And Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Remember where we were two Sundays ago? Why did Noah found, find favor in the eyes of God? Because Noah was so good? No, because God is so good. Because God's grace reached out to Noah. 
The covenant of grace begins with grace. But God remembered Noah. If you have your scriptures, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Note how the covenant of grace in Christ that is pictured for us in that little phrase, but God remembered Noah, is found. Ephesians chapter 2. You might just as well keep your finger somewhere in the New Testament as well because we're going to be making this comparison back and forth often. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now what does that remind you of? What does that picture that Paul has just given to us in those first three verses remind you of? And God looked upon man that he had made, and he was sorry he had made man. Because the thoughts of man were only evil continually. We see that same sinfulness. But notice what happened. Next verse. But God. But God. In spite of the sinfulness of the world, but God remembered Noah and establishes his covenant. What happens here? Even though we were once in sin, even though we were once alienated from God, even though we were polluted with our own sinful passions, but God, being rich in mercy, grace, but God being rich in grace, because of the great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's covenant. That's covenant of grace. That's what that is. Paul is explaining to the church of Ephesus the covenant of grace. You're saved. Why? Because of grace. You're entered into a relationship with God. Why? Because of grace. Notice it's not Noah sitting on the ark. He's got all the time in the world, right? Okay, he's sitting on the ark. The rains have stopped. We're just waiting for water to go down. Right? And sometimes that's a long process. Some of our farmers understand that this spring, right? Waiting for the rain to go down. Waiting for the water to abate. Okay? You, you just wait and wait and wait for the field to get dry. That's all Noah's got to do. But is Noah thinking, well, you know, I think it would be nice if God and I had a covenant. God, how about if I establish a covenant with you in regards to this flood? No, it's not on Noah's mind. Noah's not thinking it. Any more so than we of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, are thinking, you know, I think I'd like a relationship with God. Even though I'm sinful to the core, even though I'm polluted, even though I'm following my own evil desires, I still want a relationship with God. We don't want a relationship with God. We hate God. 
But it's God who is rich in grace who comes and establishes a covenant with his people. Pictured for us in that first verse of Genesis 8. Secondly, the covenant is confirmed by sacrifice. Now, notice what happened. Okay, Verse 20 of Genesis chapter 8. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So we have clean animals, a picture, picture, a symbol of sinlessness, a picture of perfection. So Noah takes animals that are a symbol of perfection. He offers them on an altar. And what does verse 21 tell you? And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. You realize God didn't say that before the sacrifice? The covenant that gets established here in 8 and 9 gets spoken of by God only after there has been the sacrifice. When God smells the sweet aroma of perfect animals, symbolically, being offered up on an altar, God smells the smell. Now, that doesn't mean God delights in, uh, you know, steak that is cooked well, so well all it is is char. It, it, that's, not, that, that's not the point. The point is the picture of the perfection of that animal giving its life, having its blood shed. That is what God is smelling. That is what God is taking in. The perfection of the sacrifice. Now, that picture of those sacrifices continues throughout the whole Old Testament, right? Abraham offers sacrifices. Isaac offers sacrifices. Jacob will offer sacrifices. God will come at Sinai. Well, actually, God comes in Egypt and tells Moses, have the people take a Passover lamb. Shed its blood, put its, door upon, put its blood upon the doorpost. They go to Sinai. God codifies, put into law, all sorts of things about sacrifices. And what do we read in Leviticus over and over again? That when the priests do that work, as they are called to do it, following that which God desires, what does it say? And God smells it, and it is a pleasing aroma to him. And that continues throughout the entire Old Testament. As Jesus comes into Jerusalem, as we were at in Mark chapter 11 this morning, what's everybody busy doing? They're busy getting ready for what? Another sacrifice. Another Passover lamb. Another animal shedding its blood going back to how is the covenant begun? 
It begins with grace, yes, but then the sacrifice. Now let me take you to two passages. Let's go first of all to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Start at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that generally, even myself will admit, that's generally where we stop the quote again. But read on. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? Because there is no need. Why? Because Christ has offered once for all a sacrifice. So no more sacrifices because of Christ. But what was that sacrifice of Christ to God? Yes, it's a single sacrifice. It's a perfect sacrifice. But what is it talked about in terms of the Father? Go back to Ephesians chapter 5. That single sacrifice of Christ. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us. What does that mean? means he sacrificed himself, right? So we have the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God being offered. What is it described as? A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The sacrifice of Christ, as the sacrifice of Noah in Genesis chapter 8, of a perfect animal, is a pleasing aroma in the nostrils of God. And that confirms the covenant. That event there in Genesis chapter 8 is now a shadowing, a foreshadowing of that which will happen in Christ. A perfect sacrifice so perfect, it only needs to be done once. And to God, that perfect sacrifice is a fragrant aroma, pleasing. It satisfies. It confirms the covenant. Thirdly, let's go back to Genesis chapter 8 once again. We read God repeating these words 
several times. Genesis 8, 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Neither will I ever strike down every creature as I have done. Go into chapter 9. Okay. What does he say when he establishes this covenant again? Verse 8, verse 9 of chapter 9. Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. That every living creature that was in, is with you. Verse 11. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now let me ask you a question. Is there a condition God establishes now? Is there a yeah but? Is there a if established? I will never do this again if, if you meet some condition. No, there are no conditions. There are responsibilities God speaks of, but no conditions. God made the covenant. I will never again destroy this world with a flood. I won't do it. End. That's it. No, I will never destroy the world with a flood. If Noah, hey, you don't get drunk. If you get drunk, Noah, I'm ending this. You better look out, buddy. There's going to be a flood. I'm never going to destroy this world, but if you mess up, if you fail to keep my law, boy, the tidal waves are just going to come over this earth. No, there's no if. This covenant is unconditional. There is no if. I will never. So young person, if you're sitting here tonight, having heard, sitting in a science classroom somewhere, that we got to be really, really careful with the environment because if we're not careful, all that polar ice cap is all going to melt and the whole earth is going to be flooded. What did you just learn is the lie. It won't happen. Because God said it won't happen. Never again will the earth be flooded with water. I mean, we don't have reason to be concerned. That doesn't mean there aren't things that we ought to take care of. After all, please note, God establishes this covenant not just with man. He establishes it with the creatures as well. It's reiterated several times. But please note, the world is not going to end in a flood. The Bible is very clear. It's not a flood, it's a fire. That's what will destroy the earth. But not a flood. Remember how we were talking a couple of weeks ago that the whole direction begins with these long ages is to kind of belittle it and say, ah, that couldn't happen. To belittle the fact of a worldwide flood 
because then we don't have to think about being accountable before God. You see what all that talk is? It's avoiding of the real covenant. It's an avoidance of Christ. Because he's promised he's never going to destroy the world with a flood. If you trust Jesus Christ, if you believe Jesus Christ, then that's not the way the world is going to end. Never, never. I'm never going back on this, God is saying. I'm, I'm never changing. I'm not, I'm not relenting from this. this is, it's unconditional. Turn with me to John chapter 10. There's lots of passages I could go to, but I, I'm just going to pick this one. John chapter 10. See, when God comes to Noah and establish this, this covenant by grace, confirmed by sacrifice, this becomes unconditional. That, what is happening there, as Brother Jim prayed about, that reality of history, that event, is picturing for you and I our salvation. It is by grace, it is by sacrifice, and it, brothers and sisters in Christ, is unconditional. John chapter 10, 28 and 29. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. Note the word never. I give them eternal life and they will never perish if they follow me. Don't sin. I give them eternal life and they will never perish if they perfectly keep the law all the days of their life. See, there's no if. That covenant is unconditional. There are responsibilities, yes, but not conditions for being in that covenant. This is God. This is God's work. Your salvation is the work of God. It's not a cooperative effort between you and God. If it were a cooperative effort, we'd fail. That's what we did the first time. That's what we did in the garden. We failed. God gave Adam everything he needed. And Adam failed. If God simply puts Christ before us now, we're going to fail again. We will never keep covenant. We are sinners. We will never perfectly keep any covenant that God places before us. That's why this covenant of our salvation, the covenant of God's grace, has to be an unconditional covenant. Look at it again, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father 
who has given them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father have one. See, this is where it is from that teaching of Christ that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Why? Because that love of God in Jesus Christ is an unconditional covenant. What is my responsibility? My responsibility is to believe, to have faith. But where does my faith come from? It is the gift of God. My responsibility is to walk with God. Where does that come from? From the Holy Spirit that God gives to me. I have responsibilities, but they do not either enact or unenact the covenant. It is unconditional. So let me ask you a question. As, as God is speaking to Noah, do you think Noah's sitting there going, boy, God, can't I have a part in this? Boy, God, I, I'd really like to have a role in this. Don't I get to do something, Lord, so it kind of falls on me, so I kind of become part of this covenant thing? Well, just think about where that would have ended up. Because where do we go next Lord's Day? And Noah plants a vineyard, and he eats some of the grapes of the vineyard, and he becomes what? Drunk. Oh, how's that covenant condition working out for you, Noah? First harvest season, how's it doing, Noah? You fulfilling your end of the covenant? No. Oh, well, better start building another boat, I guess. Maybe I should have brought it down from Ararat with me. Because that would have ended it. Just imagine. Just imagine, brothers and sisters, if the cross of Christ and the forgiveness that you and I have in Christ was conditioned upon our never sinning again. Did you just make it or fail? You just failed. It's not conditioned upon our obedience. God offers to us an unconditional covenant. Fourthly, but this covenant is also symbolized. God does two things. I think we, we sometimes kind of miss this as well. Go with me to chapter 8, verse 22. Chapter 8, 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What is that? That is God's symbol. See, I'm never going to strike the world again with a flood that destroys the world. How do you know that? How do you know that? I'll give you a symbol. Day and night will continue to follow each other and seasons will continue to follow each other. As you see the seasons, as you see day following night, know that that is God's testimony of nature, of his covenant promise. I'll never destroy the earth again with a flood. But then in chapter 9, 
he gives us the other one, right? The bow that is set in the heavens. That rainbow. Dr. DeYoung calls it God's wedding band. God's promise to us. Set in a symbol. Set in something tangible that we see with our eyes. So that's what we do, right? How many of us don't say when there's a storm, even the other night at the campground, and the sun is shining like crazy, and the rain is pelting down, and, and what did many of you say? Got to be a rainbow somewhere, and when you say that, what are you thinking? You're thinking rainbow, you're thinking Noah, you're thinking God's promise, I'll never destroy the earth again with a flood. That bow in the sky, that picture that God gives us in the heavens, that continues to this day, the seasons that continue to this day, the circuit of the sun, Psalm 19, that continues to this day, is God's visual picture to us as his people of his covenant promise. That of Genesis 8 and 9 is a foreshadowing of that which is fulfilled in Christ. The seasons are not what God gives to me to remember his covenant with me in Christ. The rainbow is not given to me to remind me of God's covenant relationship to me in Christ. This is. This is what God gives to you and I to remind us of his covenant of grace with us. Helpless babes who do nothing. God makes covenant with them in Christ. He gives me this table Two pictures, two symbols, two signs, two seals, a picture. And he took a cup after supper. He said, this is now the new covenant in my blood. This is a picture for us. God's pictures to remind us of that covenant of grace made through the sacrifice of Christ, the washing away of sin, the shedding of his blood, a perfect sacrifice given to establish an unconditional covenant with us. Next Lord's Day, that table is set before us again. God invites you to come. To come Remember, believe his covenant made with you by grace, made with you and confirmed through the sacrifice of Christ that no one and nothing will ever snatch you from his hand. Father, we thank you for your word and for its testimony to us. That these ancient words speak so clearly in prophetic form of the covenant that you make with us in Christ. Great 
is your faithfulness. We thank you for it. In Christ's name, God's people say, Amen.